The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today it is my pleasure and honor to welcome a fellow dietitian, Suzanne Dixon. She is not only a registered dietitian, but she also has a master's in public health. She's an epidemiologist. She's a writer. She's authored book chapters. She writes for the health and medical community. She is an internationally recognized expert in nutrition and chronic disease prevention. And I really enjoy her work in cancer nutrition in particular, but she has a broad perspective of knowledge when it comes to nutrition and preventing chronic disease, and she received her degrees from the University of Michigan School of Public Health at Ann Arbor. Suzanne, welcome. Thank you, Melinda. I'm so excited to be here. Well, I love your work. You've got a wonderful blog, and we should let our listeners know just in advance that if you go to HTTP, nonutritionfear.com, you can find a lot of Suzanne's wonderful writing with references so you can learn more about a smattering of nutrition topics. But let's just jump in. I'm curious to know if somebody were to come into your office and ask you, you know, say, Suzanne, I really want to change my eating habits. What are the most important things that I can do? That's a great question because there are so many different diets out there and people thinking about what what you should focus on. And there are some key things that really do tie everything together. And the first thing is eat less processed food. And by processed, I always say it has a barcode. You probably shouldn't be eating it very often. It should be considered a treat. So I, I think something that's key to think about is you don't need a barcode to tell you that apples or broccoli or oatmeal or nuts or those types of foods are healthy. You just know they're healthy. So that's the number one thing is eat less processed food. And then the second thing is eat more plants. And by plants, I don't necessarily mean white bread, which, you know, in some regards, people might think that's a plant as as it comes from a grain. But I mean more vegetables, more fruits, more legumes. So that would be beans and peas and other uh, types of starchy uh, chickpeas, those sorts of things, and nuts and seeds. So those are the foods that really should form the foundation of what we're eating And unfortunately, for most people, that's not the case. Well, I should let our listeners know that you are one of my favorite go-to dietitians. And one of those issues that we've had a conversation about has to do with fatty acids in the diet. You have a wonderful piece on your website talking about high fat, low fat, saturated fat, what the fat. And there, just as you mentioned, there are so many diet books on the market. Some of them are saying, yes, butter, bacon, cheese, eggs, go for it. And then the next day you find out that, no, wait, let's take all of that saturated fat out of our diet. How do we make sense of all those recommendations? Well, I think the thing that is so hard for people is that nutrition science is a young field. It's a really young science. And, you know, if you think about it, a lot of the vitamins and minerals weren't even really discovered as being vital to our health until well into the 20th century. So the thing to think about is that it's a young science, so it is going to shift and change over time. And unfortunately, with our 24-7 news media, even 
findings from a study that maybe aren't really all that revolutionary, or maybe they are sort of contrary to what the, the conventional wisdom is, and it might be just one study out of, say, 15 that goes in one direction and all the other 14 go the other direction, chances are that when you look at that big picture, you want to say, okay, what is the general pattern here? Because no one research study is going to tell you what the answer is. It's sort of looking at the big picture. So I think it's important to think about a couple of different things. One is, and, you know, you hear this over and over, and a lot of people get tired of the word, but it really is true, this idea of moderation. And that is, I don't think that people need to start thinking I should have butter and bacon and all the saturated fat I want. But there is some evidence that having some of those foods in your diet in moderation, meaning a couple times a week, can be compatible with a healthy diet and, uh, you know, keeping your chronic disease risk lower. So it's kind of like a question of what does the general pattern of the diet look like and, you know, what are the things I want to focus on? And again, I come back to the fact that when you look at across the world, through the different countries, different regions, different ethnic groups, the types of dietary patterns that seem to yield the best health are the ones that are predominantly based around plants. Now, that doesn't mean they can't have any animal products in them, but they're predominantly based around plants with smaller amounts of those animal foods that provide the saturated fats and some of those other cholesterol and things of that nature. So I think that the problem is the media is always looking for that. I say that everybody loves a contrarian because it's the, those are the things that sell. You know, those are the things that get people to click on a link or to get people to pick up a newspaper is something that's completely contrary to what the conventional wisdom is. And typically when you see something that's that contrary, chances are that it's it's not that black and white. So it's important to try to keep some perspective and think about what do I need to do for the long term, not just a fad diet or something that seems to be hot right now. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting with our new dietary guidelines, they were recently released. And of course, it's just the committee's recommendations right now. But these dietary guidelines form the backbone of nutrition policy. So they will shape what a person on a WIC coupon, for example, can purchase in the grocery store or what somebody who is eating school lunch can have on their lunch tray. So they're very important. And one of the things that was of concern to me, and i I'm very curious to know how you feel about this as well, is how we've lumped all saturated fat together and all polyunsaturated fat together as if one is bad and one is good. And my concern is, I remember years ago learning that individual fatty acids that are in the saturated fat category, for example, are actually not harmful, just as there are polyunsaturated fatty acids that we might want to get more or less of. So my concern is that we've lumped still, after all these years, all saturated fat bad, all polyunsaturated fat good. How do you talk about or address those kinds of issues with your clients? Well, that's interesting that you brought up the dietary guidelines because the uh, draft version of those are, have, has just been released, and that's exciting. We can pull up that report, and it's 500-some pages long, so it's quite a quite a slog to get through it. Yeah. But there's an executive summary, so you can see some of the details of it and what the, the key points are. And for the first time, there is a little bit more of a focus on food rather than nutrients. And I think that, unfortunately, the nutrition science seems sort of sexy and exciting in regards to a particular nutrient, like a particular type of saturated fat or a particular type of polyunsaturated fat. But, again, when you look at what the research really points to, it's patterns of eating. It's not looking at each individual nutrient. And the other thing is, I don't think people think in nutrients. People think, 
what am I going to eat today? I'm not going to think in my head, let's see, I think I'll have five grams of saturated fat for lunch. People think, I think I'll have a chicken sandwich for lunch or whatever it's going to be. So that's one thing about the dietary guidelines that in the past I think has been a flaw is this focus on nutrients rather than foods because people don't think in nutrients. And this new version that is, is under review right now seems to be pushing more in the direction of foods rather than nutrients, and that's good. And the other thing is that it is for the first time ever actually using the word less. So I mentioned that word earlier, moderation, which, of course, everybody rolls their eyes because we say that about everything. But I think that when we use that in a dietary guideline type of context, it's really confusing for people because what's moderation for one person might be excessive to another in terms of how you think about food. So, you know, one person might think moderation means you get dessert once a day. Another person thinks moderation means you eat dessert once a week. So that term is, is sort of slippery and difficult for people to wrap their brain around. And so I like the fact that we've moved away from instead of things like use, you know, sugar in moderation or eat sugar in moderation to eat less sugar, because we all know that, you know, deep down inside, I'm sure most of us are aware of the fact that eating a lot of simple sugar from processed foods is not good for our health. And until now, this very recent set of guidelines, the word less and sugar have never been used in the same sentence, and that was a problem. And part of that is because the process is very political. It's highly politicized in terms of lobbying influences, different types of food in the agricultural groups. So I feel that that has really distorted the science in a direction that maybe isn't supported when you really look at the broad stroke of the literature that's out there on research on diet and health, and it gets pushed and pulled and Someone says, well, I'm with the sugar lobby. I don't want the word less used in front of sugar. And that, in the past, has become the guidelines, is that they were swayed by those types of concerns. And my sense is that this newer set of guidelines is finally going to try, at least in some regard, to get away from that sort of political slant on what we tell people. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing that I think is exciting, is that for things that we know are probably not good to have in excessive amounts, we've gotten rid of this idea of moderation because, again, that doesn't really mean a lot to people. But if you tell people, eat less of this, less means less. So most people understand, well, I probably should cut certain things out to get less of that particular food or, or, um, you know, carbohydrate source or whatever it is. So that, I think, is something to keep in mind. I always say that when people say, well, why are the dietary guidelines confusing and why do they shift and change? And it's because food is so incredibly politicized in this country, and that that really does distort, I I believe, the policy in in certain directions. Yeah. You know, I always see you at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics annual meeting, and you're always involved with the practice group that focuses on oncology. And I would feel terrible if we had this interview and I didn't bring up the fact that you're an award-winning dietitian for your innovative nutrition education programs, specifically around oncology. You've also managed the outpatient oncology and HIV-AIDS nutrition programs at the University of Michigan. We only have a half hour. I could fill that half hour with all of the work that you've done in this field. But if you were to particularly or specifically guide a patient towards a diet that was cancer-inhibiting or cancer-preventive, absolutely we've got good data on having more plant-based foods or plant-based meals, for example, with meat more as a side dish where the plant food is the focus of the plate. What about the fatty component or the, you know, what kinds of fats would you say? And there was a session that you helped head up this past year 
that specifically it was very narrowly focused, though, um, but it was excellent about this idea of ketogenesis or having fasting prior to cancer treatment. And I thought that was really interesting, and we should probably talk about it. Absolutely. Well, in terms of the fats, again, you cannot go wrong in terms of disease prevention when it comes to cancer in particular. You cannot go wrong with focusing on plant fats over animal fats. And I know I sound like I'm uh, beating the same drum over and over against animal fats. And I don't believe that you have to have a completely, you know, vegetarian or vegan diet in order to have a healthy diet. But you do need to shift. You know, we need to have about three quarters of our plate covered by plants and a quarter covered by, if you know, if someone is inclined towards having animal foods, that would be that quarter of that plate. So you want the most fat in your diet to be coming from things like nuts and seeds. That's a big one. From things like olive oil, from things canola oil is fine. If people prefer something that's not quite as strongly flavored, olive oil can, can have a very distinctive taste to it that some people don't like. So... Again, I steer people towards plant fats in general, but that can be confusing because most processed foods use plant fats, but they all use soy oil, and they tend to use forms of it that are really not particularly healthy. So when I say plant fats, I mean unprocessed plant fats like extra virgin olive oil and nuts and seeds and those sources of fat. So that's one thing that I would steer people towards in terms of the fatty acid component of their diet. And then in terms of this that the Oncology Nutrition Dietetic Practice Group, which as you mentioned I've been involved with, we put on a session looking at therapeutic and metabolic interventions that might be coupled with cancer treatment to hopefully get better outcomes. And it's a really interesting topic area. And there's this idea that perhaps for certain types of cancers and maybe under certain circumstances, fasting around the time that you would say get a chemotherapy uh, treatment or get a radiation therapy treatment might be beneficial. Now, that can sound a little strange because some cancer patients lose a lot of weight and struggle to get enough to eat, and those are not the people we're necessarily talking about. But for folks that have cancers, the the two common cancers that come to mind are breast and prostate, and those patients, believe it or not, tend to gain weight, which is not a good thing. That's not helpful for their outcomes. It's not good for their risk of recurrence, and it's certainly not good for the fact that they are still at risk of all the same things that the rest of us are at risk of just because you've had cancer It doesn't mean you get a get-out-of-jail-free card for heart disease and diabetes and hypertension and stroke. So we really want these folks to not gain a lot of weight, and they do tend to. So that's kind of the groups that we're thinking of, that fasting around treatment might be tolerated reasonably well. And the theory behind it is that when you fast, your normal body cells get kind of quiet. They go into sort of a quiescent housekeeping mode, which means they are just sort of sitting there doing the very bare minimum metabolic needs to keep themselves running. But cancer cells, the hallmark of cancer is uncontrolled growth and replication. So cancer cells, even if you cut off the nutrient source, they don't have the luxury of slowing down. They just keep right on growing and reproducing very, very quickly. And so the theory is that if you fast around the time of, say, chemotherapy, those cancer cells are still going to take up all those uh, medications and, and drugs that are being used to kill them, and they are going to just keep chugging right along while your normal cells will be in a much quieter, lower metabolic state, and they actually will not take up as much of those substances, which, of course, as we know, can have side effects and be toxic to normal cells as well. So it does have some underpinning in sort of a metabolic reality is that your normal cells can respond to a fast by slowing down, whereas cancer cells really can't. So it's sort of believed that this may help protect the normal cells and also sensitize the cancer cells so they're a little bit more sensitive to that chemotherapy. So it makes a lot of sense. 
And there are lots of clinical trials going on, so I think that's going to be exciting within the next, I would say, two to three years. We're going to get a lot more information about that. And as far as the keto, oh, yeah, go ahead. No, I just wanted to say that you have a great article about this. So as our listeners are listening and becoming curious to know more, your nonutritionfear.com website has a review of this whole topic. But I'm sorry to interrupt you. Please go ahead with ketosis. Oh, sure. Yeah, and the other thing to think about is, as I said, so this fasting may be appropriate for some cancer patients, but then there are other cancer types that can sometimes lead to what we call hypermetabolism, meaning the the metabolism of the body is, is really revved up, and these folks tend to have a lot of difficulty maintaining their body weight. They tend to get very depleted nutritionally. This might be someone like a head and neck cancer patient or a pancreatic cancer patient. If someone has metastatic disease, meaning it's more widespread through their body, those folks may not be so appropriate for something like fasting because they tend to lose weight precipitously during treatment. And we know for a fact, the research is very clear on the fact that if people become very malnourished, they do worse. They have to have dose reductions in their treatments so they aren't getting their full dose of medication. They sometimes have to take what we call treatment breaks, which is never good. You want to always get through the treatment on a schedule as planned. They often will have more symptoms and side effects because their body's breaking down. So you have to be very careful to make sure people understand that this might be a really exciting idea for certain patients, but not necessarily others. So so that's, of course, a plug for the registered dietitian and why you would want to see someone who has some expertise in this area so they could help you sort out whether that might be an appropriate thing to try with yourself or whoever your, your loved one is. Mm-hmm. As far as the ketogenic diet, that's really fascinating because that's really big. Even in popular culture, there's a lot of people who are kind of They say they're going keto, meaning they want to get their body into what's called ketosis. And that is a state where you're mainly burning fatty acids for energy, and that creates things called ketones, and your body can use those ketones for energy. Now, to get into true kind of full-blown ketosis in a way that would be metabolically beneficial in terms of cancer treatment, this is not, a lot of people think, oh, it's just a low-carb diet, you know, it's like an Atkins diet or a typical, you know, paleo-type diet, but that's not really what this type of diet is, believe it or not, and and it sounds horrible and it really is a hard thing to do, a person that's on a true ketogenic diet, what we call a classic ketogenic diet, they take in about three to four grams of fat for every one gram of protein plus carbohydrate. So this is a diet that is about 75%, 80% fat, pure fat. So it is a very unnatural diet. It's very hard to follow because if you even take in too much protein, a lot of people don't realize this, but protein can be turned into glucose in the body. You can take certain amino acids and actually make glucose. So if you get too much protein, even on a ketogenic diet, that will basically take you out of that deep ketosis that we want people to be in. So in terms of therapeutically, it's a very different situation, again, um, where you'd want to be working with a dietitian, you'd want to be um, understanding what you're trying to achieve. And I always say, don't dabble in the ketogenic diet if you have cancer because then you just end up eating a really, really poor quality diet and not getting any potential benefit out of that ketosis. So it's um, a diet that is very unusual, and it's being most studied in brain tumors. Mm-hmm. And that makes a little bit of sense because of all the tissues in our body, the brain, it can use ketones for energy, but it doesn't do it as well or as readily as other tissues in our body, muscles and organs and things of that nature. So the theory is that because the brain doesn't use ketones all that well, that brain tumors may not either. So you get that same idea that you're starving that tumor and 
making it more sensitive to those treatments. So that's kind of where it's, it's most heavily being investigated is, is in this sort of brain tumor arena, which is pretty exciting because brain tumors are terrible and they're very difficult to treat. So mm-hmm. anything that could enhance treatment is, is definitely a viable option. Right. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we are speaking with Suzanne Dixon. She's a registered dietitian, epidemiologist. She's an author. She writes book chapters. She's an expert in health and medicine with regard to nutrition. She's been the recipient of multiple awards, and she is really an expert when it comes to the kinds of diets we can eat to prevent chronic diseases, and she has a specialty in oncology. You know, we should talk a little bit about vitamin D, I think. It was one of the issues that you have also focused on on your website, but it's probably one of the hottest vitamins now that people are talking about and supplementing with. And I wonder what your thoughts are on this. You know, suddenly everyone who's living north of South Carolina should be taking vitamin supplements or vitamin D supplements during the wintertime. Do you think that's a good idea? You know, that is, this is one of those, those questions where, and it's very frustrating as an expert in a field, but also as someone that's trying to find out about it to hear this, that proverbial, we need more research. But that's where we are with vitamin D. And part of the reason it's so confusing, and I think people need to understand this, is that for a long time, people were starting to investigate this and say, wow, all these people are low in vitamin D. And part of the issue that we ran into is that laboratory testing of vitamin D wasn't standardized. It was very difficult to compare one lab result to another from a different lab. There were different forms of vitamin D that people were measuring. There were different protocols that they were using in the lab, which could give you vastly different results on the same blood sample. So that is, I think, where some of the confusion got started is that when these early people who I call them the vitamin D pushers, the people who are really advocating for very high doses of vitamin D in supplemental form, some of that information was coming out based on what I would say is sort of imperfect information, basically from what are people's actual blood levels? What do they look like and what does that mean? There's also some complicating factors in terms of genetically, how do people absorb vitamin D? How does their body use vitamin D? Some people just naturally can get their levels much higher than other people, regardless of, you know, there are certain people who take supplements and their levels still kind of hang in a lower end. But my feeling is that most people can benefit from taking a moderate dose of vitamin D, which I would classify as anything from about 800 to 2,000 IU a day. And I would not necessarily go above 2,000 IU a day unless you're working with a physician and you have had a good quality vitamin D test that tells you that you're actually low. So by and large, the research is pretty solid that vitamin D is pretty safe. It is fat-soluble, but it's not toxic in the same way that, say, vitamin A is, where you can build that up and cause liver problems and all sorts of other things going wrong. Vitamin D tends to be considered pretty safe. But we do have questions about, you know, do you really want to push the level way, way up into a range that can can potentially have health consequences that are, are negative? So I encourage people... You know, if you do have the opportunity to get it tested at a, you know, reputable lab, working with your physician, that's that's certainly good to get a baseline and understand where you're at. And other things that play into it, of course, are uh, skin color. Because if you have darker skin, you don't make vitamin D in sunlight very readily. It takes you much longer period of sun exposure to make the same level of vitamin D. So you have to think about the fact that people with darker skin that live far in the north are really the ones that are going to be at the highest risk of coming up low on vitamin D. So I think that, that that's some things to think about. Also, as we age, we don't make vitamin D as well with sun exposure. So a lot of times 
it can be of benefit to supplement older folks. And there are some pretty reasonably solid studies, some intervention-type studies that suggest that older folks who are a little bit low in D, if you supplement D, it can do things like help prevent falls. And you might say, why would vitamin D prevent falls? Besides helping with bone health, it helps with neuromuscular health, so just coordination, balance, those sorts of things. So as people get older, they're probably going to have a much greater likelihood of benefit versus harm with supplementing vitamin D. So I do think it's something that I would say most people can benefit from probably taking, you know, as I said, 800 to a couple thousand IU a day. And the safe upper limit is defined by the the folks that make the dietary reference intakes and the, and the RDAs is 4,000 IU a day. So I just tell people don't go above that unless you are doing it with a health professional's guidance. Mm-hmm. That you make sure you're you're getting the benefit without the risk of harm. Well, I thought it was interesting. You know, you talked about the different lab values that come back, and there are some people who think that the low normal is too low, and we need to raise that, in particular, yeah. to reduce risk for cancer. So I'm wondering, you know, you get your lab values back. What level do you want to see your vitamin D at? I like to see it a good little bit of the way into the normal range. And interestingly, I happen to be one of those people that my levels just tend to be very low. And so I do actually track it over time and I try to keep it not at the, you know, right at the border of insufficient, but a few points above that. So I don't think that necessarily we need to have people, you know, the range is quite large and a lot of people like to push to be, to put people in the upper range. And I don't know that that's actually supported by the science. But I do think this question needs to be resolved of what is normal, what is you know, what is the right cut point? Because there isn't agreement on that. You're absolutely right. Some people mm-hmm. in the vitamin D community say it's set too low, and other people say it's absolutely perfectly fine where it is. So, you know, I always tell people just make sure that you're above that deficient, insufficient range for sure, because we do know there is a point below which you, you definitely are going to have not good outcomes in terms of your bone health and probably cancer risk and, other, and, and uh, cardiovascular disease and other things along that line. And there are some recent studies suggesting that it may play a role in, say, type 2 diabetes, people who are at risk of type 2 diabetes. So there's a lot of chronic disease conditions where being at the low end is probably not helpful for vitamin D. And the, the concern in terms of supplementing really heavily is that there are a few studies, and they're just observational, which, of course, I'm sure you and your listeners know that doesn't prove cause and effect. We don't necessarily know that one caused the other, but there are some observational studies suggesting that at very high levels you may get increased risk of certain types of cancer. Mm-hmm. So that's where the caution comes in with, with, you know, pushing it really, really hard. But, there, you know, there's a lot of questions about whether that's cause and effect or not. Some people say, well, it could be the disease process itself that is changing, you know, how your body's using vitamin D and that sort of thing. So we don't really know if that's true. And it, as I say, they're just hints that maybe higher, you know, very, very high levels are, are not helpful so that's why I suggest to people, you know, try to get yourself kind of in that middling range. And I don't think it's necessary necessarily to push yourself to that top top range of, of the lab value. Suzanne, you have proven that nutritional science is fascinating and incredibly important to continue to study. And I want to thank you so much for being my guest. I know that you are working on a new project called Kitchen Cures, and I'm going to have to have you back on to talk about that. But in the meantime, we will leave people with the nonutritionfear.com website. And I'm hoping that as Kitchen Cures advances, 
we will not only have you back, but also you'll be able to provide more information on your website for that as well. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, I want to thank you, Suzanne, for being such a terrific resource for me and for sharing your wisdom and expertise with our listeners. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. 